We're going to read all of chapter 2 so that we get a frame of reference of what we're looking at here. And then we'll get started into uh, today. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would add the Word of God to our understanding, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would not be dull of hearing. Father, if there is anything that we need to confess before you, that now would be this time. Lord, we take you at your Word, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness we thank you for that trusting that there is nothing standing in the way of receiving your truth we ask for the spirit to illuminate it to our understanding to illuminate our hearts the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to this truth she would help us through the text we pray it in jesus name amen I'm going to encourage you, if you wouldn't mind, please, as last week, we've got a notes page in your bulletin. If you're someone who wants to take notes, I've got some things for you today. I believe they would help you, otherwise I wouldn't have included them. And I'm going to ask you actually to turn back to Matthew 1, because we're going to look at something there. 
I'm calling this sermon, Hermeneutics, Prophecy, and the First Advent of Jesus. And here's the reason why. Hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. It's a science because there are particular rules that are involved in interpreting the Bible. It's an art because you have to apply those rules skillfully. But also when we deal with the idea of prophecy, it's almost like everyone, when they get to prophecy, they want to abandon the rules of hermeneutics and understanding the Bible, and they come up with some of the strangest things that they write down in order to try to help us know Jesus more. And I think what this actually does is it causes a regression in our understanding. And so I'm going to ask you to bear with me just a little bit. If you're someone who took the hermeneutics class a few years ago, some of this is going to seem familiar to you. It's not going to kill anybody to have a refresher. And dare I say, if you have any questions, raise your hand, okay? Good questions. Now, as is custom, I just looked over Jay's way and I need a drink. So, so let's start with this. A man named David L. Cooper is very uh, instrumental in trying to win Jews to Christ as their Messiah. He wrote this. It's probably the best statement I've ever seen on how to handle the Bible. Here it is. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. If you don't get anything else out of it, that line right there is worth writing down. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of the related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. In other words, if the text doesn't lead you there, don't go there. Take it for what it says. And that seems kind of plain, yes? You're going to find out that it's not so plain. So, three steps for good Bible study. You probably know these. First one, observe, observe, observe. Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. Keep going for it. You're asking the question, what do I see? And you're asking all the right questions. Who, when, what, where, why? And what, what for? Ask all of those questions of any text that you would deal with. The second one is interpretation. This is where we're going to spend primary of our part dealing with Matthew 1 a little bit, but all of Matthew 2 to see why this is important. We're asking the question, well, what does it mean? How do I get meaning out of what I'm seeing here? The last one is application, and it has to happen in this order. You have to first ask the question, what did it mean back then? That's the first thing. It doesn't matter what it means now if you don't first understand what it meant to the people who originally received that information. Get that first, and then you can more successfully bridge the gap to why it should make a difference. Now, when we deal with interpretation, the most important thing is the author's intent. Do I sound like a broken record to everybody? You probably heard me say this before. Thank you for nodding your head. That was rude. Okay. Just kidding. With any piece of literature... What has been written can only be understood properly if we are in tune with the original author's meaning. Now, I know we use this example a lot, but this is why if you're in a Bible study situation and you hear somebody say, I think it means this, call a timeout, kindly reach over and clamp your hand over that person's mouth, okay? And just simply ask the question, what did the author mean by what they wrote? What does the author mean? Because though the author may be Matthew or John or Paul or Isaiah or Moses, the ultimate author of Scripture is who? God, the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. So no one is writing anything down in the Bible that first God did not want them to say the way that he wanted them to say it, meaning exactly what God desired to mean through it. And he's like, well, that sounds kind of fantastical about a book. That's because the Bible claims of its own origin to be a supernatural book. It sets the standard high for itself because it can take the scrutiny. So it's not scared of disagreement. It will always come out on top because it's always true. If the meaning of a text is not the author's, then no interpretation can possibly correspond to the meaning of the text. In other words, what does that mean? 
If I don't know what the author meant, I don't have meaning. Does that make sense? Okay, seems pretty simple. I'm keeping it simple today. It's good. It can't just be a regular Christmas sermon with me, can it? No. If I say to you, you should really check out this trunk. What am I talking about? Possibly? Wow, look at the trunk on that elephant. Or, how about that? You should really check out that trunk. Why? Because it says just married on it. That's a happy thing. Maybe I mean that trunk. Why? Because it looks cool and weird like it came out of Lord of the Rings. That's why. How about this trunk? Why? Because we don't know what's in it. Now, here's the thing. When I said you should really check out this trunk, chances are you automatically had in your mind a frame of reference of something of which you have a bias or a recent interaction with or that your mind just gravitates towards for some reason. But if you don't know what I mean by what I say, you don't know exactly what trunk to look at. Now, here's the question. Which trunk did I mean? Don't know, do you? You know why? Because you have no context. You have no context in order to determine meaning. And that's how you come to the author's meaning in Scripture. So, when you deal with the author's intent, all interpretation is to be understood literal, regardless of the genre of Scripture before us. doesn't matter if it's poetry. A narrative, we always handle that literally because it's unfolding historical facts for us. But especially when we get to prophecy, we don't lose our minds. Are there symbols of something? Yes. Are there allusions to other things? Yes. Is there always a literal meaning behind the devices that are used? Yes, every time. So, there are two types of literal interpretation. The first kind is plain literal. We know that pretty well. The explicit assertion of the words. I've got something in my eye. Can that be taken figurative in any way? No, I'm letting you know. I got something in my eye, especially if I'm doing this. You get that. Figurative literal is the idea of the, ex- the specific intention of the figure being used. Again, a literary device. A figure of speech being used by the author always has a literal meaning behind it. If I say, she's a sight for sore eyes... Am I asking for anybody's got visine? Is I asking for that? No, what are we saying by that? What does a figure of speech mean? She's a sight for sore eyes. Good to see you. Wow, you're a sight for sore eyes. Oh, here. Is that If that happens, we would all laugh at it. Why? Cuz we understand that that set it up to not be what the figure means. Does the figure have a literal meaning though? It does. It has a literal meaning behind it. So, Again, the author's intent interpretation. The immediate context always serves well in determining the author's meaning. And Scripture interprets Scripture carefully. You can't just say, well, let me give you a for instance. Uh, In fact, I can't even remember where it's at. I want to say it's Isaiah 60, but I can't remember where it's at. Maybe 62 right now. In Isaiah 62, they bring up gold and frankincense. One of the worst things I could ever do is say, it says golden frankincense, so I'm going to introduce it in right here, and this is a fulfillment because the Magi brought golden frankincense. Now you got the person, well, myrrh's not in there, so it can't work, okay? But that's not the way that you would end up determining it. The question is, is what did it mean when Isaiah wrote it? And therefore, does it have a meaning that comes upon this text? Now, these are simple tools that lead us to a better understanding of how to handle prophecy. So, here we go. Everybody test for yourself. I'm going to give you an Old Testament situation here. And then we're going to look at Matthew 1 and see how it plays out. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now number one, why does Jesse have a stem? Why is that? Why are shoots going to spring from it? This sounds like a tree guy to me. Is that right? No, it's not right. There are, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Why does Jesse have roots? How come Jesse can't walk around because he's rooted into the ground? Does everybody see how silly this gets? What is it talking about? Well, the idea of bearing fruit is bringing something forth, and the idea of a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, or a branch from his roots is the idea of something coming out of his line. 
We understand this. Why? Because figurative language is being used to state a literal point. Now, look at Matthew chapter 1. Here we go. Look at verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of who? David. Who was David's daddy? Jesse. If you said God, we'll count that right too. Okay? But, absolutely. It's Jesse. Also the son of Abraham. There's significance of why that's brought up. We're not here to get bogged down in that. We could talk about it some other time. If you want to email or something, that's great. But also look down at verse 6. Jesse, there he is, was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. So notice you have that, and then you skip down to verse 16 and 17. Sorry, I'm really thirsty this morning. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Who comes from Jesse? Well, who comes before that? David. Does that seem right? David was the king. Who comes from David the king? Jesus. Everybody see how this works? Pretty it's real easy. It's real easy. Look over at Matthew chapter 2. You have at least four sections here that are prophecy that are fulfilled. And so it's really important for us to examine those and ask the question, how are they fulfilled? And I'm going to tell you why this matters at the end. So it says here, look at verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, it's about six miles away from Jerusalem, in the days of Herod the king, gives you the time of when it happened, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, now from the east, if you were to stretch eastward from where you're dealing in Bethlehem, you would go over the Arabian desert. They probably wouldn't travel that way, but where would their location probably be? Probably Babylon. Here's the reason why. The word Magi is actually a derivative from a Persian word that means astrologers. And Babylon was known for having a wealth of astrologers. Why? Because they were a pagan nation, a pagan kingdom, a pagan setup, a pagan people. We know this from Daniel being exiled there, King Nebuchadnezzar, the whole deal. And they had this idea of being able to tell the future by the stars or to determine somebody's luck or something by the stars. Bring all your wise guys in. And what do we do? We're going to look to the stars because we're well-versed in all of that stuff. Well, notice here they come and here's what they say. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Boy, that's a way to begin a statement. They're looking for the promised Messiah. It tells you that they had some understanding about what was going on in the Old Testament predicting his arrival. For we saw his star in the east, that caught their attention, and we've come to worship him, which automatically precludes they understand the superiority of Christ in the situation, even though he's going to be a child. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. It wasn't an isolated incident. Gathering together all the chief priests, the chief priest would be the high priest over, over the Jews at that time, and probably his next family or the sons who would be in line to serve as priests as well, and the scribes. The scribes were lay people. They didn't have an official job here, but they were considered experts in the Old Testament law. So they were going to come and scrutinize all this stuff. He calls on the cream of the crop to come in and deal with the question that he has on this. It says, he inquired of them of where the Messiah was to be born. Uh-oh. Does everybody see an interesting link between the question of the Magi about when the king of the Jews was going to be born? And then Herod asked them, where, when is the Messiah going to be born? Does everybody see that connection? The anointed one of God, the Messiah, and the king of the Jews. Herod gets it from his question. Now watch what they do here, because they actually teach us how to deal with prophecy. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, they don't mince any words. Where is the Messiah to be born? Here. For this is what has been written by the prophet. Now notice what it says here. Micah 5.2, and you Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler, and this is supplemental, we'll talk about it in a second, who will shepherd my people Israel. In your translation, when you look at that, you probably see that it's in all caps, depending on what kind of translation you have. 
The reason is because they are wanting to draw your eye, your mind, to the reference of the fact that this was spoken in the Old Testament, and it's something that's being fulfilled right now at a point in history. Now, if we were to go to Micah 5.2, it reads like this, and you're going to say, how come it reads a little different? Here's the reason why. It's because by and large, the quotations that are used from the Old Testament that are brought into the New Testament and brought up in the text are actually the Greek translations of the Hebrew. Everybody was speaking common language Greek in the New Testament times when all of this happened. And so all of the references are going to have the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's not going to be the Hebrew translation, except for, I think, in a couple of different instances. So if you were to take your, your Bible just real quick and turn back to Micah 5.2 for yourself so you can see this. We know our Old Testament, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. We know it. Anybody? Just me? Jonah? Anybody want to guess what comes after Jonah? Micah. Good job, man. You guys are all over it. I love it. That's great. Try to help you out there. Micah chapter 5. Look at verse 2. I love the rustling of pages. Thank you for silencing your phone so I didn't hear those annoying clicks. I appreciate that. But as for you, Bethlehem means house of food. Ephatheth, it's the idea of productivity is what it means. It's actually considered a small little suburb of Bethlehem. And notice it says here, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now that's not a cut down, but what it's pretty much saying is, It's a small city for such a great thing. It's going to happen there. Because look at what the next line says. From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now notice that last little section there. They don't bring that up. In fact, let me see here. This work? Nope. That part right there, they don't have it, okay? This isn't included in what's going on. I'm going to explain why here in a second. Notice this. Micah 5.2 predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. The chief priests and the scribes understood Micah 5.2 literally. They didn't spiritualize it. They didn't allegorize it. They didn't say it's just figurative speech. It's a literal thing, which explains why they could declare to Herod that the ruler would come from the actual geographical town of Bethlehem. Now, if you notice the second part of that, this section here seems kind of strange. Actually, this part right here, a little bit out of place. Who will shepherd my people Israel? Didn't say that in Micah 5.2, but that's okay because the Old Testament still did. In 2 Samuel 5.2, you say, previously when Saul was king over us, now this is the 12 tribes talking to David as they're bringing him on and exalting him as their king after Saul's demise. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And Yahweh said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. Now, here's the thing, because we're going to deal with this idea in just a second. Yes, I asked you to think at church today. I actually did that, okay? Here we go. Does this mean what it means at the time it was spoken to David? The answer is yes. The people, when they spoke to David and they said this, it means exactly what they wanted it to mean. You, speaking to David, will shepherd my people Israel, and you, David, will be a ruler over Israel. Then why is it applied to Jesus in this prophecy that the scribes and the chief priests decide to give to Herod in this? We'll talk about that in just a second. Notice back in Matthew 2, verses 7 and 8. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me, so that I too may come to worship him. And all God's people said, Liar! Right? Exactly. Verse 9, After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they'd seen in the east, went on before them. So yes, the star moves. It's actually leading them where they need to go. Until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. Notice no longer in a manger. Time has taken place. He's grown up. They were actually able to find some place of habitation at this point. 
They fell to the ground, they worshipped him, then opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child, And his mother, while it was still night, and they left for Egypt, he remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord. Notice this word. Everybody see that? Fulfill. To bring it to its end, or to bring it to its completion of which God intended. What had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Who's the prophet that spoke it? It's Hosea. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, same situation. As before, when they talked about who would shepherd the people, the 12 tribes were talking to David. Yes? Who's not awake? Come on, man. Stick with me, please. I'm going to take a drink. Collect yourself. They were speaking to David about he was going to shepherd their people. Now we have a similar situation. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. This is Hosea 11.1. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Who's the son in 11.1? Notice that. These go together. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You actually find that in Exodus 3. Now, how in the world should we understand this? Because Matthew is applying this to Jesus. Is he messing it up? What's he doing with these Old Testament scriptures? Did the Old Testament scriptures actually refer to Jesus first and we should go back and kind of scrub the Old Testament and just read Jesus into everything we see in the Old Testament? No, we should not. Whatever the authors in the Old Testament meant at the time they spoke and wrote is what they meant at the time they spoke and wrote. Is everybody with me? Okay, I'm super jazzed about this, so I'm asking you, please, Holy Spirit, get these people on fire, okay? If that's the case, how do you handle this whenever Matthew wants to import this previous meaning, dealing with those people, dealing with David, dealing with Israel, and come in and apply it to the Messiah? In his prophecy, Hosea was talking about Israel, whom God called his son and delivered from Egypt. But Matthew understood that Israel was a type, very important word, of God's son who was yet to come. A type is a historical person, institution, or event that prefigures a future corresponding reality. In other words, it's setting up something in the Old Testament in order to give you a preview of something that God is going to do in the New Testament. Thus, as God called his son Israel out of Egypt, did he call Israel out of Egypt? Yes, he did. So he would call his true son, just so there's no confusion there, out. And that's Tony Evans. Don't argue with Tony Evans. So notice this here. Oh, sorry. Backing up. Even though a type is used, it's still a literal fulfillment. Did God appear in a dream to Joseph and say, get up, get your wife, get your kid, get out? Didn't he say that? Did they literally do that? It's a literal fulfillment, but it's a type. Now let's explain that for just real quick. Understanding types and antitypes. This is probably the best definition I found because it's small and actually fit on one slide. It's great. A type is an Old Testament institution, event, person, object, or ceremony which has reality and purpose in biblical history. Pause. Going to the temple, going to the tabernacle, We have a lamb here. We're big old sinners. We're offering this lamb. The priest would then take the lamb, go, slaughter the lamb, spread the blood in order to project righteousness. The blood dealt with sin. Does everybody understand that? At that time, did that animal's blood deal with sin? Did it do it literally? It's a literal lamb. You can tell by my face you're wrong. Okay? It's a literal lamb, yes? 
There was literal slaughter going on, yes? Did the people have literal sin? Was it a problem? Great. Can everybody see how this is a type of what Jesus would do? Everybody see that? This was to get in everybody's mind the whole idea that death must occur in order for sin to be forgiven, that blood must be shed for sin to be paid for. So it's an Old Testament type that is preparing people's minds and hearts for when the Messiah would come and hang on the altar of the cross before God and atone for the sins of the world. It's a type, and by Jesus coming, that's what's called an antitype. He's fulfilling that idea. So notice it says here, but, which also by divine design, that means God's involved, foreshadows something yet to be revealed. So it's real events and things that are happening in history, but it's got a projection to something that's upcoming. Look at Matthew 2.16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, which tells you that's about the age range of Jesus was, and that's how he ended up in a house and he wasn't in a manger anymore. According to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Then, prophecy number three, what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. See this word? Brought to conclusion. Here's what he says. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, I'm actually going to flip slides, but you almost can't tell. Watch this. Everybody see that? Let me do it again for you. There, there, there. In fact, I'm going to get that out of there so you just don't know. You don't know, do you? You don't know. But here's what you find out. It's an exact quotation of what Jeremiah said. Look what he says. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. What are we dealing with there in a feeling? Were they really weeping over a situation back then? Here's what's interesting. In Jeremiah 31.15, we have the emotions connected to the captivity of men from Jerusalem to Babylon as a result of idolatry. The reason why the ladies were crying at that time is because all the men were being led off into slavery because God was judging them because they refused to worship God and instead had made idols for themselves and gotten into all kinds of messed up things, child sacrifice, all of this crazy stuff. So in Matthew 2.18, we have the emotions connected to the slaughter of the two-year-old and under males in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Why does that matter? Here it is. Because each one means what it originally means at the time that it was written, and each one was fulfilled literally. Does that make sense? They were really crying over this captivity situation in the Old Testament. Guess what? It was to get minds and hearts ready for the idea of what would later happen in this situation that would take place due to the arrival of the Messiah. Back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of the father Herod, so they can't go back to where they were before, he was afraid excuse me, to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left and went to the region of Galilee, which is up north. So they instead decided to travel back a different way to avoid that problem. And here's what's interesting. And came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now everybody look at that in your Bible. Because we might potentially have a problem here. Does everyone notice that it's not all caps? Anybody see that? Look in your Bible. Don't look at my screen. This is my screen. Don't look at my screen. Look in your Bible. Do you see it? Notice in what we previously had with the first thing about where will he be born. And then you had all caps, Old Testament quotation. And then you had the situation out of Israel will call my son. And you had all caps Old Testament quotation. And then you have the situation with the slaughter of the two-year-olds, and there's all caps and Old Testament quotation. And here, they didn't capitalize it. I know, I know. 
Maybe the editors forgot. Let's blame them, right? They just left this part out. Well, it's not in red because it doesn't matter. Stop with all that. That's not even right. Watch this. This has been difficult for some to understand because, here's the reason why it's not capitalized, there is no specific scripture passage or verse that makes this statement. So the Bible is a liar? See, there's a ramifications you have to go through when you look at something like this. There is a plausible answer. So, how should we understand it? If you look at Isaiah 53.5 and Psalm 22, both of these are considered messianic passages. There's something written in the Old Testament that is foreshadowing so that we would get some kind of mental grasp on the idea of who the Messiah is when he would arrive. In Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. There was nothing wonderful and attractive about Jesus when he showed up. There was nothing in and of himself that was marvelous that somebody would have said, I've got to make my way through and see that. He didn't look like Pierce Brosnan when he showed up, okay? Psalm 22 is interesting because it is a messianic psalm. And in it, David actually predicts crucifixion 600 years before it was ever invented by the Romans. He actually says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion as a method of execution had not even been invented yet. But here's what he says about this person that this is going to happen to. I am a worm and not a man. Now, does that mean that he crawls around and is good for bait? No. Let's understand that there's a literal meaning behind the figurative expression here. A reproach of men despised by the people. Does this sound like attractive things are going on here? Does it sound like anybody that we would treat this way in our lives? Don't answer that out loud, but it's something to search your heart and think about. In John 1.46, Philip finds Nathaniel and asks him a really interesting question that deals with this idea of he will be called a Nazarene and the prophets were talking about what this would look like. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. In other words, the entire Old Testament has been pointing to this one person and he's here. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, That doesn't surprise me at all because Nazareth is such a happening place. Ain't nothing but the cream of the crop coming out of there. Is that what it says? No. Can anything, can any good come out of Nazareth? But notice, that's not what the, what the common knowledge was of the day. Nazareth, is, is, those people are trash. Nothing good comes out of there. That's a slum. Nobody wants to bring anything through there. You're going to get robbed if you go there. People are of no worth that come from that place. Can any good thing come out of there? It's interesting because Philip says, come and see. So, how is this idea of him being a Nazarene fulfilled? It's fulfilled because he had all the qualities of which the contemporary culture at that time magnified upon a Nazarene. It's still a literal fulfillment of prophecy. Now, here's the whole reason why I took you through all of that so that you could see it is I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. Did somebody just moan at going to Revelation? If you're scared to read Revelation during Christmas break, your job is to read Revelation. Read it out loud. Should we expect consistency with the first and second coming prophecies? How did these things happen? They happened literally. Jesus was literally born in Bethlehem. He was literally called out of Egypt. There literally was weeping and moaning because people were dying at that time. He literally had all the qualities of somebody who later on, culturally speaking, would qualify as a Nazarene because everybody around there thought they were good for nothing. All these things literally happened. Yeah, what we find is that anytime that you take something 
beyond the first advent of Scripture. And if you're somebody who's just studiously desiring to know your Bible, come to know the Lord a little bit more and His plan for the future, you will find out that everybody loses their minds and abandons literal interpretation and leaves anything prophecy speaking up for speculation. Now, you've heard me emphasize this before, but here are some questions we should ask. Will the nation of Israel really live in the land? Will there be a temple in the millennium where sacrifices are made? But here's the one that I'm concerned about. Will the millennium be a thousand years or something else? Chapter 20, look at verse 1. This is after Jesus returns to the earth. And he's dealt with all opposition, and look what happens. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him a thousand years. And just in case that doesn't make it clear, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Stop there. No, it's the middle of a sentence. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Refresher real quick. Did the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus happen literally? They did. This is an amazing quote. The thousand years is quite clearly not to be understood as an exact measure of time, but rather as a symbolical number. Strict arithmetic has no place here. The term is a figurative expression indicating an indefinitely long period of time. A complete perfect number of years. What? Complete and perfect, but it doesn't mean a thousand. Number of years, probably not less than a literal 1,000 years. In all probability, very much longer. That's not the only one. This is all over the place. I'm just going to give you two. The thousand years mentioned in verse 3 make up the gospel dispensation. Which what he means by that is when Christ came and we're to go out and be preaching the gospel and evangelizing people. The gospel dispensation from the first coming of Jesus, what we looked at in Matthew 2, the first advent, till that brief period of apostasy expressed in the words, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Now, you may say, what in the world is he getting at? What's that? Exactly. What this guy is implying by bringing this as a reference to this point is that Satan is chained up and bound right now. now I don't know about you. <laughs> he has a cell. He's calling from the abyss. Hey guys, do this. Was this AT&T? I don't know about you, but the recent things that we've witnessed in the midst of our government have been nothing but shameful. And so in a situation like that, I have to ask myself the question, can I really believe just from experience alone that Satan is bound? I think the idea is no. But beyond that, and more importantly than that, that's not what the text says. So the idea is that the thousand years is actually from the first advent of Jesus until right before His second coming is what they're saying. Now, if you're a parent... Have you ever had to remind your child more than once about something that needed to be done because you knew they had the incredible ability of tuning you out? Mom is talking. What do they hear? Whatever I want to do. 
right? You need to take your shoes off. You're in the house. Whatever. Right? The biblical authors aren't any different. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Oh, and after that thought's over, when the thousand years were done, the reason why we repetition something and the reason why John is told to repetition something is because the emphasis is to be exact. Now here's why this is important when we think about Christmas, the coming of Christ, and a reason to celebrate and to give you a little bit of confidence because everybody is wigged out about the future and what that holds now. Rest in this. And this is Pete's favorite person, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Are you ready? Understanding the first coming prophecies and the ways in which they were fulfilled helps us to understand and correctly interpret the second coming prophecies. In other words, God has given us, just by reading the Bible, a way to understand it up front. So the reason with the place, I don't even know where I'm going with that sentence. He's given us an understanding up front so that the things that we are not experiencing or coming across yet, we can at least interpret them correctly because of the pattern that's been set. Does that make sense? God's not like, I'm going to literally fulfill everything and then whatever, he doesn't do that. And we hear all this speculation about what it might be up to and what do you think this could mean? I got a great idea. Read it for what it says. Use the context. Carefully take other scripture that talks of the same event and bring it in and come to a logical biblical conclusion about it. But don't just say it's all figuratively speaking. We've got a whole other group of people saying, well, everything was fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. There's nothing left to be fulfilled in scripture. Does this look like the kingdom of God to you? I hope not too. Notice, because all first coming prophecies were fulfilled in a literal way. And not allegorically, and not spiritually. The church is not Israel. Keep those distinctions clear. We should expect the second coming prophecies to be fulfilled in the same way. Why would God want to lead you astray? Is God out to deceive people? No, but who is? Think. Anytime that we would be sitting down to try to learn more about the Word of God, sincerely desiring especially in an area of prophecy that seems very, very complicated. And we've got people who are churning out volumes, and it's a good old boys club of people that are so approved, and their translations, commentary, understanding is so wackadoody out in the middle of left field, I don't even know what to do with it. And it's leading people astray from what God has plainly said. The whole reason why Jesus came the way that he did in order to set those things up for us, is not just to understand, yes, Christmas, born in manger, he was poor, all the stuff that's so sad, but then he became the savior of the world. It's great. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Joseph, wow, you were so cool and courageous, all this. Yes, wonderful, amazing, wonderful things we should all take joy in. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we run off the rails in how we understand Scripture. When we get to something that's a little bit more complicated, especially in an era where we don't live. Last one, I love this guy. He's great. You want to get any of his writings, check him out. Begalki is his name. He's great. Recognizing that approximately 300 prophecies were fulfilled literally in regards to the first coming of Christ. Futurism, or people who actually believe that he's going to come again in the future and set up a kingdom, believes that the remaining prophecies of the second coming will also be fulfilled literally. And in eschatological, that means end times, period. If he set the precedence for how to understand him in the first coming, he's setting up the same precedence for the, for the second coming. Now, why do I say this? Number one, not everybody reads their Bible that way. A lot of people do this. Pastor, tell me what it means. That's great. I don't mind telling you what it means, but I also plan on locking arms with you and taking you on the journey with me so that you can see it for yourself. The reason is, is because what I think it means doesn't matter a hill of beans compared to what the author meant when he wrote it. So we have to stay solid on that. Number two is people have avoided. In fact, I I thought about asking for hands, but I'm not going to. But just raise your hand in your mind, okay? Maybe you're someone who's actually avoided Revelation reading it. Either because you feel like it's too complicated, you want to kind of stay away from prophecy. Well, that's not here, so I really don't know. Or, you've actually been taught to be terrified of the book. 
There's a lot of people like that who have been taught to be scared to death of Revelation. I've actually talked to some people and they've said, I don't read that book. Why? It scares me to death. I'm like, the hope, our hope is in this book. It's bad stuff that happens. But one amazing thing is, is I'm not there. That's a great conclusion to come to when you study that book. Where's the church? I can't find them. From chapter 6 to chapter 19, I can't find the church. Yeah. Why? Because all that stuff is bad. And we're not there. That's the hope that keeps us moving forward. I know how it plays in. Read Revelation. Pan it out literally. If there's symbols and things, of course there are. You don't understand? Cool. Recognize there's a literal meaning underneath it. It's not hard. Do that. So, is this a Christmas sermon? Eh, not really. But, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show you, you can understand the Bible on your own. Just follow what God has shown us. Just follow the pattern that He unfolds because there's always... A meaning there. Now, Merry Christmas. It is 11 after 11, and I'm going to pray. I did that for you. For y'all. Here we go. Stop clapping. We need to 1 John 1, 9 this thing right now. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the Word of God, that it's not just perfect in its wording, in its content, but also in its structure. And you have gone to great lengths to show us how you fulfilled these things with the birth of your Son so that we would understand the things that are not yet seen. That we can have confidence for how things will move forward. That they're not too complicated to understand. It does take effort. It does take time. And it takes good rules of interpretation in Bible study. So Lord, if we haven't done that, we need to do it. If we haven't ever sought to grasp the Bible, so that we could understand it for ourselves. I pray, God, you set us forward on that journey with confidence, knowing that you desire to be known, you desire for your plan for the end to be understood, so that we could tell other people about the wrath to come. Thank you that Jesus has been given freely for us to liberate us from that terrible time. You've taken care of our sins. You walk with us every day. You've promised to never leave us. Thank you for the word of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.